Well, thank you. Those are tremendous words. Let's uh, take a few moments to pray silently, to ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to open his word together, and then I'll open us up in a word of prayer. My Father, the only right response is to sing praise to your name, and that's in every vicissitude of life, in those seasons of loss which some among us have experienced over these last few weeks of a child, in seasons of blessing, when we know that what we've received is by grace alone. In every phase and every experience of life, you are worthy of praise, and your grace is magnified to us. Because what we have in terms of fellowship with you, what we have in terms of the sufficiency and promises of your word, have been made real to us by your spirit who has moved us from darkness into light, who has given us hope that is beyond this world, a certain hope grounded in the resurrection of you, Jesus Christ, from the dead, a hope that is ours and a hope in which we rest as we seek to live out our days here in faithfulness and in truth. And we ask now as we look at your word in First Peter that you would, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, wills to obey gladly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 9 through 12. We looked at verse 8 last week. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 12 this week and. Namely, as we noted, Peter addressing more broadly here the church and how we are to bear witness to Christ in this world. Uh, Let me begin by noting a little period of history. Around 112 AD, Pliny was the Roman governor of Bithynia. Bithynia, And if you'll remember from back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, that's from the region of those to whom Peter is writing. He says he's writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those who are chosen. And it's from the same area of, uh, of those to whom Peter is writing. Well, this governor, the governor of Bithynia, wrote to the Roman emperor Trajan. He was seeking essentially on how to deal with the problem of Christians, these Christians that were being brought before him. And his difficulty was that he wasn't exactly sure of what crime they had committed. He wasn't sure exactly of what the charges were uh, against them. And he was aware that many false charges had been brought uh, against them anonymously. And that was one of his complaints that letters unsigned and so forth were brought against these groups of Christians. And at first, the numbers were small enough that he merely asked them if they were a Christian. He gave them time to turn from that confession, even on threat of pain and torture and death. And if they didn't, he simply executed them. However, as Christians began to multiply, the problem became more increased. And he was somewhat perplexed on how to deal with this issue. And so some he recognized as they were brought before him, if they would merely make a sacrifice to the statue and make, you know, wine, oblations and so forth before the statue of the emperor, that they would be set free. Others renounced Christ altogether and said that was something that they believed before, but no longer do they believe it, no longer do they associate with Christianity. But in saying that, they also, some of them gave this defense, which is recorded in Pliny's letter. 
He notes this. The amount of their fault, of the fault or error, had been this, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and recite by turns a form of words to Christ as a God, and that they bound themselves with an oath, not for any crime, but not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, and not to deny a deposit when demanded. After this was done, their custom was to depart and to meet again to take food, but ordinary and harmless food. And even this, they said, they had given up doing after the issue of my edict, by which in accordance with your commands, I had forbidden the existence of clubs. That's one section in this letter. So in other words, the witness before this pagan Roman governor was this, that these Christians had among themselves a primary commitment to worship Christ, to submit to governing authorities, to live lives that are pure, holy, and honest. And though they were still persecuted, this was their witness to Christ. In other words, it was their purity of life and their unity as believers and those who would not renounce not only the name of Christ, but what it means to live for Him in an unrighteous world that bore witness of the name of Christ that eventually in the course of time would win over much of the Roman Empire, but not without the cost of many lives. And it's completely reasonable to think, as a matter of fact, we can certain be certain that these who were being referred to in Pliny's letter were those who had received this very letter from Peter that we read this morning. It was their attempt to be obedient to the very words that Peter is an apostle of Christ and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit recorded for us in this letter for us this morning. And these, of course, understood the difficulty of obedience. The very reason that he's writing to a scattered people is because they were scattered because of their testimony of Christ and were undergoing a measure of persecution. And so they understood the difficulty, but they paid the price to be a witness to Christ's life in a hostile world. And that's, again, where Peter directs us this morning and essentially is the heart of the letter. Let me read our passage. I'll read beginning in verse 8 down to verse 12, and then we'll pick up where we left off. Verse 8. To sum up, or finally, or in all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil that you will recognize from what we read this morning from Psalm 34. Now, last week we noted the Christian's witness to Christ, to the life of Christ as his body, as his physical representation on the earth. We as the body of Christ are indwelled by the spirit of Christ and are the representation of Christ to the watching world. When the world sees us as the church, as those who bear witness to Christ, they are in essence seeing his reflection. They are seeing him in us. And we noted then that That reflection of Christ among us is manifest primarily 
in our unity, our walking in love, our walking in love according to the truth, but our walking together as the people of God. Jesus prayed that, if you'll remember in John 17, that it is by our love and it is by our unity that we bear witness to the gospel of Christ. And that's essentially what he's addressing in verse 8. And he's summing up as it begins that which he began in verse 11 of chapter 2, which is saying this is our witness and a part of the broad witness of the church as we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that as we are slandered, such as those in the letter of Pliny, as evildoers, that because of our good deeds as they observe them, some may actually be won over to Christ and glorify God in the day of visitation. So the idea here is our witness, our spirit-empowered witness of Christ. And so in verse 8, he's focusing primarily on that witness as it's observed among the community of believers, among the body of Christ. There are commands here that that are too exclusive to be applied to our relationship to the world in general, such as being of the same mind or brotherly love. Those are things that are exclusive to Christians, exclusive to the body of Christ, who can be of the same mind in our commitment to the truth. And there is no doubt that this is, or those characteristics in some way are to be manifest to our interaction with the world, and Scripture has plenty to say of that, that we are to do good not only to the household of believers, but do good to all men. We're to seek peace and pursue it with all men. But there is a particular way in which that is manifest among the body of believers in a way that shows their unity and, in fact, their union with Christ. In verse 9, he makes a transition. And now he deals, and this is the second point, of the witness of Christ of believers to a hostile world. The witness of Christ, the witness to Christ of believers in a hostile world. And so he makes a transition here in verse 9. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the other hand, giving a blessing. Now, as I mentioned, as the characteristics of verse 8 give a dim reflection or are dimly reflected in our interaction with the world. So it is also true that in verse 9, while he's addressing primarily our response to an unbelieving world, there are reflections of this among our own fellowship. We're not to return in kind and be retaliatory. But here he specifically is addressing our relationship to the unbelieving world. It's highly unlikely, particularly in the context of 1 Peter, that he would be addressing evil being done to other believers and insults done to other believers uh, in the context of him teaching us how to live in a world that, in fact, is hostile to the gospel and is doing those things daily to those who are naming the name of Christ. So it's best to understand here that he's referring to our reaction to the, the hostile world. Hostile world. Now, this is, in fact, what he leads off with in verse 9, one of the most difficult exhortations or commands, really, in some ways, in all of Scripture, certainly here in this context, not to return evil for evil, not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. Few things, it seems, run as deep within the fallen human heart than to feel justification, a personal sense of righteousness even, to respond to someone or feeling ill toward someone who has done evil toward us, who has been hostile to us in some way, who has dismissed us some way and treated us wrongly. 
The most natural impulse of the heart, the fallen heart, the most natural impulse of the principle of sin is to retaliate against someone who has done us wrong. We don't even have to think about it. It's a visceral reaction. It's an automatic reaction. It's a habitual reaction. It comes emotionally. It comes deep from within us. It comes as a simple pattern of being fallen. Namely, that we want to return evil and do harm or wish harm or have a scorn or a bitterness or a hatred towards somebody who does us wrong. And Peter is saying that we're not to do that. And how hard that is and how against our fallen flesh that is at many times because, again, nothing feels more justified than that. And that is, those who have children understand one of the most common justifications for sin in the household. Well, why did you hit them? Because they did this to me. You know, I hit them back. Or why did you get upset? Well, because they did this. As soon as because comes out of the mouth, then we're in violation of the command here. We're never to return evil for evil. Now, that being said, I want to relate that to two um, common ways that this could be misunderstood or there, where there could be some confusion. The first is, how are we to understand this command then to, in relation to Old Testament justice? How are we to understand this command in relation to Old Testament justice? In the Old Testament law, it's stated five times in the context of bearing false witness or taking a life that is of murder, of abuse, or injury in a struggle, that the offender should receive in kind what he has taken in committing a crime or offense against another. You're familiar with this? This is how it goes. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25, we read this. If there is any injury, then you shall appoint life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot, burn for burn, burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. Deuteronomy 19.21 even adds this. You shall show no pity. You shall show no pity. Now, some of you may be familiar with these words and that it's known commonly sometimes as the lex talionis. And that comes from the Latin that basically means let it be like. Let it be like. It is an Old Testament law of retaliation. An Old Testament law of retaliation. So how do we fit that with Peter's passage here? And Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul's instructions throughout his epistles not to take vengeance. How do we reconcile these two things? Let me make just very quickly two points. One is this. The Old Testament law is specifically related to the administration of justice within the legal structure of the nation of Israel. It's not addressing the matter of personal vengeance or retaliation as is Jesus, as is Paul, and as is Peter in our passage. In other words, this is a legal code dealing with justice, not personal vengeance. In other words, he's not personally saying that you are to do this in kind as a vigilante. He is saying that under the Old Testament legal code, this is what is required against someone who commits this crime. Secondly, the purpose of the Old Testament law was actually to prevent excessive judgment. In other words, it was a statement of justice. The intention of the law was to say that a crime will not receive more punishment than it was due. It was a means to guard against excessive punishment. It was simply a way to say the the punishment 
fits the crime. It's, it's actually a great statement of justice, which, just as a footnote, interestingly, is found in other ancient Near East uh, religions as well, just because of common grace. What about in relation to government laws? What about in relation to government laws? How then are we as believers to have this kind of justice and what are we to do in in not taking personal vengeance but yet to experience some measure of justice in this fallen world? Well, in the New Covenant, authority for the punishment of crime and execution of justice for God's people is not as a nation. We are not a covenant nation. We are a covenant people, the New Covenant people of God. We are not a covenant nation as the nation of Israel So we live as the people of God among nations. And God has, in this period, instituted or granted or given authority to governing bodies, to civil authority, we've already covered this, as a means of executing justice. As a means of executing justice. Those are the civil authorities that we are to submit to that he mentions in verse 13 of chapter 2. It is, which he says, particularly in that context text, actually, uh, this, that we are to submit to the king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And the same thing is repeated uh, in Romans chapter 13. So God has established human authority and government for the purpose of justice, the punishment of evil, and the reward of those who do good. And this instrument of justice is rightly administered in cases of crime and abuse. Therefore, when there is an injustice or a crime done against us, it is not wrong to make the proper use of authority for the execution of justice in our culture. In other words, if we're in the parking lot and somebody gets mad and slams into our car, it is not wrong to, to have retribution from that person through the normal means of our legal justice system. If there is a murder or a crime or a theft or something like that or an act of violence committed, it is not wrong for the justice system and to pursue that uh, to seek that that crime receive its just recompense. That's God's establishment. So he's not saying that we bear every crime, we bear every wrong, and we seek no right to it. We seek no act of justice. That's not what he's saying. We see many examples of that even in the life of Paul in the book of Acts. No, he's already established the government is there and it does have a certain authority and it does not bear the sword for nothing to punish what is evil and to praise and to uh, promote what is good for a culture and for a society. So to say not to return evil for evil is not talking about the lack of use of that authority that God has given to us to administer his justice in the world. Of course... As we noted even in that letter of Pliny, again, and human experience uh, throughout the history of man, because of sin, this authority can actually become a means of punishing the righteous and letting the guilty go free. It's an imperfect system. It's, It's not always a good administer of justice. In this case, it even can mean our suffering as a result of injustice, and yet we are to trust and to glorify God Nonetheless, and realize this is God's means of working out his goodwill on the earth. He says in chapter 4, actually, just a note here. 
along those lines. Make sure none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, if you did suffer for that case, you're only getting what you deserve. But if you are going to suffer, do so as a Christian. And in that name, do not be ashamed, but glorify God. So here stands the command, however, that we are not to return evil for evil, which is to say then that we are not to respond to evil with a heart that pursues personal vengeance. That's the idea, that we are not to pursue personal vengeance, that we are not to pursue even the proper use of human authority through government and through those legal systems under which we live, even those are not to be done with an attitude of vengeance and an attitude of hatred and an attitude of destruction for those who have done us wrong. We are to have an attitude of non-retaliation and that is a part of our witness to the gospel in the world. Now, as far as that goes, there is a certain sense where that's unexceptional. That's unexceptional. Unbelievers and leaders of false religions have had a non-retaliation philosophy throughout the world. You can think of Gandhi, for example, in India and others who sat as crowds to face the injustice that they endured and were beaten and were put to death and uh, endured all kinds of evil and injury against them. And yet they were unbelievers. As I noted, even that call for eye for eye and tooth for tooth is noted in ancient Near East cultures and other legal codes. It's not only in Israel. So what is unique about this? What is unique about this? How is this particularly a witness to Christ? Well, in the first most basic sense, it is because the non-retaliation is done specifically as a result of our testimony of Christ. In other words, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him glorify God in this name, he said in chapter 4. In other words, clearly their actions are associated with the name of Christ. But it goes even deeper. It goes even deeper than that. Look at what he says. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but... Giving a blessing instead. Giving a blessing instead. The command here is not simply to restrain from returning in kind, but when receiving evil or an insult from someone, to actually respond just the opposite with a blessing. To respond with a blessing. Now what does that mean then to bless? The basic idea here is to speak well of someone. To speak well of someone means essentially to have a disposition of heart and that desires to seek their good, that responds to ill in a way that communicates good and not evil. In a way that communicates a humble acceptance of that wrong without a desire to return in kind, but rather to still seek the good of the one who is persecuting now, there's a general application of that that we're familiar with in Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That means when somebody responds to you and has an attitude that is provoking, and guys, that'd be like bumping chest, and you know you're in each other's face, that the way that we dissolve, the way that we diffuse that situation is taking an act of aggression or provocation against us and actually responding in a way that has gentleness, that diffuses the situation. That's one way that this could work out. 
It could as well be the idea that when we are treated evilly in a hostile world that has an antagonistic attitude and even a disdain of the name of Christ and of Christianity, that that is an opportunity to speak to that person the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. I think you, there's many, many examples. I think often of Richard Wormbrand from Tortured for Christ. He was being abused and suffering and he would witness to his persecutors and very often, uh, in many cases, some of them came to a faith in Christ. It's the kind of attitude that was displayed in many ways. You think of Stephen's prayer for the murderers, which at that time would have included the apostle Paul at that time called Saul in Acts chapter 7 when they were stoning Stephen for his witness of Christ. And he cried out at the end of that, that God would have mercy on those who were killing him, even in the very act. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That is, in essence, bringing a blessing on them who are doing evil to him. I want you, God, to restrain from, from holding them accountable for this sin against me. Of course, that was illustrated as well by Jesus on the cross. While he's being crucified, while he's being mocked, while they're dividing his garments below him, treating him as a common criminal, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they are doing. His attitude was not to call down the vengeance of God, but rather to call down the blessing of God on them. To restrain to holding them accountable to the measure, the gravity of the measure of the sin that they were committing against him who is the Lord of glory. Paul, on suffering in the world and because of his ministry for Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. In other words, this does not go without example. The example of Christ, the example of Stephen, the example of Paul, the example of martyrs throughout the history of the church. That while receiving evil, while in the very act of enduring what is a wrong against them or what is a wrong against us, what is meant for our shame and what is meant for our harm, that we respond not in kind but with a blessing as something that reflects the gospel. That's tough. As a matter of fact, that can only be Experienced and done by one who has the Spirit of God in them to have tasted the kindness of God and to respond in kind. Let me give you three examples or three ways actually how we can do this. How can we do this? How can you respond that way? How can you respond that way? What enables you to do this? Because that goes against everything that is within you and within me. Everything. Again, nothing is more natural in our flesh than, want to, than want, to want to respond to someone with anger and with vengeance. It feels so good. It feels so right. It feels so natural. But he calls us to something different. How can we live this way? Let me give you three, three motivations, three, three principles that enable us to live this way. First is by looking at the example of Christ. Looking at the example of Christ. Remember the context Back in chapter 2, though innocent, it says in verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself 
to him who judges righteously. He was without retaliation. There were no angry retorts of judgment on his persecutors. He spoke the truth when asked by Pilate about who he was and even gave him somewhat of a challenge. However, he voluntarily laid down his life as a sacrifice and his silence, his passive, in a sense, his active obedience, but his passive receiving the hostility of sinners was met with a great gentleness. Meekness. He says this in Isaiah 53, 7, looking to this event. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. He was silent. He received it. Now it would appear in saying this that Jesus only restrained, that Jesus only fulfilled the first half of this, that he didn't return evil for evil. But Jesus wasn't giving a blessing there to those while he was being reviled, one could say, but that, of course, misses the very point. And being reviled and receiving the evil without retaliation and giving himself up for the sins of the world, it was so that he might be the very fount of blessing for the world, the very source of the world's being blessed. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was that he was sent. He says in that same context in verse 17, for the son did not come into the world to bring judgment, but that the world might be saved through him. So his very act of enduring that was, in fact, his blessing the world, his being a blessing to the world, that he might, through receiving this evil, offer forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, and part of a kingdom that is coming, his kingdom, and to receive salvation. So how can we live this way? One is simply to look at the example of Christ. And Peter said, for actually, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So while before the world, you're responding with a blessing to evil might make you feel a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment, a sense of being brought very low, It is as the people of God given to us to remember that that was the mark of our Savior as well. That that is what he endured on our behalf. And that when we act that way, when we respond this way, we are acting consistent with Christ himself and we are acting consistent with his life that is within us. That's one. We can do this by looking at the example of Christ. Secondly, we can do this by considering our own experience of grace our own experience of grace every believer every true believer stands in relation to God on the basis of grace by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not a result of works lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus that in fact we should do good works means that if you are a true believer in Christ, you have received from him grace, you have received forgiveness of your sin, not while you were good or righteous, but while you were ungodly, while you were a rebel, while you were an enemy of God, while you walked in hostility to God, while you and I were justly and rightly under his condemnation and his wrath. And yet we have received 
grace. We received grace in our rebellion. God has, through my own circumstances of life, brought that truth to bear on my heart in a fresh way. Is that we love not when someone is worthy of our love. That is no real mark of grace. The mark of grace is to extend love and actually have a disposition of love towards the one who is in that moment sinning against us. That is the mark of grace. That is the mark of grace that true believers have tasted and know. As a matter of fact, he says this in Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good deed, and malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. And what do we expect? God's condemnation. And at this state, God brought his wrath and his fury on us. That will come, but that's not what he says. He says, but when the kindness of God, but when the kindness of God appeared, the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So God shed his love. We experienced grace in our sin. In our sin. What enables us to respond with a blessing is by our own experience of grace that was shown to us in our rebellion, in our hatred of God, in our rejection of the gospel, in our walking in darkness, in our being under the dominion of Satan, in our being envying, hateful, and self-centered, and self-consumed, and self-serving. It was in that state that God showed us kindness. So the manifestation of grace and the evidence of understanding grace and having tasted of the kindness of God, of sharing in the lives of Christ, is not being nice to those who are nice to us. And we live like that, though, sometimes, don't we? We somehow think we are on this exalted spiritual plane when we treat well those who treat us well. And we think and pat ourselves on the back sometimes of what a nice person we are and how good we are to others around us and what a pleasant person we are. My question would be, how do you and how do I respond when you're treated like dirt? When you're sinned against? When you're treated with evil or an insult? When you do good to someone else and receive back from them scorn and insult, manipulation being used? That is the measure of grace. That is the measure of grace. It's the measure of grace in our home. It's the measure of grace in our relationship to the world. That can only be done by someone who has tasted grace, who has felt the reality and the bitterness of your own sin and the forgiveness of God in Christ. That he has forgiven even you, even me. And so that's how we can respond this way is to look to the example of Christ who died for our sin, who was suffered for our sin, who was put to shame because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our wickedness, because of our rebellion. And he endured it. And then if we have tasted of that grace and we've 
seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and we know the redemption of our sin and the forgiveness that we receive, not merely at the moment of salvation, but every single day as we apply to Christ for forgiveness because of our confession of our sin. So it's possible to come out of the one who has a new heart, who has sincerely tasted of God's grace in Christ to them, who has tasted the kindness of the Lord. And what comes out of our mouths at those times are the truest test of where we are. Thirdly, a last one. How else can we do this? We look to the example of Christ. If we've experienced the reality of grace in Christ. And thirdly, by thinking of the future reality of grace. The future reality of our inheritance. Look at what he says again in verse 9. Giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So the ability to do this is based not only on what we have received, grace, but here even more specifically on what we will receive in the future. And what is that? A blessing. A blessing. Again, notice he uses the future and not the present tense. In other words, he does not say because you have received a blessing, but rather because you will inherit a blessing. So this has a decidedly forward-looking trajectory. Inheritance is not what we have. We have it in principle. We have it in hope. But inheritance is what we shall receive. It's what we will receive. And that's, again, the hope that Peter is pointing us to throughout the entire epistle. Let me put it in a, in a bit more, some of you will appreciate it this way, maybe, in more of a theological way. How can we live this way? How can we respond that way when we think eschatologically? When we think eschatologically, when we think in light of the end, of the end, of our hope. The entire life of Christ and the entire life of the Apostle Paul, whom we admire so much, and rightly so, the entire life of Peter was lived, yes, in present blessings and sustaining grace, but lived because their hope was solidly in those things which God had promised in the future. Paul said in Romans 8, How can he suffer and consider the sufferings of this world not worthy to be compared to the glory that is ours, the glory that is coming? All of creation groans, but it groans in hope, waiting to be released into that future glory of the sons of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's how we live. And that's the only way we can live like this is when we think eschatologically, when we think in light of the end, when we think in light of our hope. And again, that's the letter of 1 Peter. We're protected by the power of God through a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's eschatology. The study of the last things. So that you endure various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith may be seen. Yes, here is a witness to the world. But ultimately, at that day in which it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom we have not seen, but we love. How do we guard our minds against the influence? Because we look at the, the grace that is to be brought to us in verse 13, at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do we endure suffering? Because we know at the end of uh, verse 
chapter 5, verse 10, that after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what enables us to live this way is when we live in light of what we have been saved to. Paul said to the Philippians, this one thing I do, I press on towards what? The goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of. Participation in this kingdom and the salvation and the glory of Christ. And that can only come as when we have our minds dwelling on those things. So it is thinking of our future. Let me just very briefly mention one other aspect of this. It is also in thinking of the future, not only of the blessing that is to come to us, that's at the heart of it, but it is also to realize that vengeance and justice, ultimately, why we should pursue it in this world, why we should honor that in this world and so forth, it's never going to be perfect in this world and it's going to be abused at different times. But it is to realize this, that our pursuit of justice and our pursuit of trying to exact from someone else a wrong done to us is really quite foolish because we could never be the executors of pure justice and we could never actually do to someone and enact our vengeance who has harmed us We could never do what we would really want to do sometimes anyway because we simply lack the power to do that. We lack the power. So he says in Romans 12, the same idea but gives a different grounding here, but still this future-looking idea. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, and leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it is to say this, look, we live in the world as sinners who have received grace. We live in the world as sinners who received grace among other sinners who we are no better than by nature. And our hope would actually be that even those who are still enslaved to their sin and still held captive by Satan to do his will, our hope should be, thinking rightly, that they would receive the grace that we've received. But we know that even if they don't, that The justice isn't ever to come from our hand. We are not to be the executors of it personally, but God will execute personal justice and perfect justice in his own time, in his own way, and it will be without fail. And so we trust God. And so we can be insulted and say, I can wait, or we can be wronged And sometimes if we have no recourse, even through government, and we say, okay, I can wait, I want good for them, but I know in the end, however justice is going to come, it will be in the hands of God and not at my own. And that is a measure of faith. That is a measure of faith. Well, let's look at this last point. Always more that could be said, but 
Let's look at this last point. The thirdly, the witness of Christ in pursuit of the good life. And this is through verses 10 through 12. The witness of Christ in pursuit of the good life. He says, for the one who desires to life and to love and to see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As noted before, this is taken from Psalm 34. This is verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34. That notes the character of the righteous. And interestingly, though he's giving a direct quote here, Peter seems to have had Psalm 34 in his mind throughout much of his epistle. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter reflects that in verse 3 of chapter 2. In talking about our pursuit of growth and salvation, he says, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord... Peter repeats in Psalm or the Psalmist in 34 9 that those who fear the Lord shall find no want. They shall be without any good thing. And Peter here is saying, well, those good things are now or can be realized by you by following the same trust in God as a covenant keeping God and walking righteously before Him. Now look here at verse 10. You'll notice. Maybe in your Bibles that it begins with four, which is in regular font, and then the rest of the quotation is marking it off as an Old Testament quotation. And that is because that opening four is Peter's edition. That's not actually in Psalm 34. There are a few changes, and he's quoting here uh, from the Septuagint. But in either case, this is Peter's saying, this is the reason why, and he points us back to the Old Covenant. And he uses that as an example, as a teaching example This is why, this is why, for the one who desires life and to love and to see good days essentially must walk in righteousness and a pure and a holy life. Because obedience to Christ and righteous living brings the greater experience of his grace in this life as well as the life to come. That's the idea. Now at first reading, you could look at that and you could say, is this a works kind of righteousness? Is this a works kind of righteousness? Is, is Peter saying that if I do this, God will do this? If I do this, then God will give me a good life? If I do this, then God will bless me? Is it a merit system? Is God deal with us on the basis of merit? You know, there's passages like this, and particularly some in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, uh, that could lead us to think this way. So, for example, Jesus spoke... Similar to this in chapter 5, verse 29 of John, the gospel. It says, speaking of this future resurrection, that those who did the good deeds will have a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds a resurrection of judgment. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 2. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, those verses have caused people to stumble. Is he talking here then about a works kind of system that God deals with us on the basis of our life and our good deeds and that if we do good, then we'll have a resurrection of life and if we do bad, then we won't? Is that what he means? No, of course not. 
Peter's already addressed this issue, if we but pay attention. In verse 24 of chapter 2, he says what? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. We strayed, but now we have through repentant faith returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. In other words, it's not a matter of works righteousness or some merit-based relationship with God. Here and in those other passages, when you run across them, it is simply a statement that manifests this basic truth. Genuine salvation and the real experience of grace and regeneration and true saving faith demonstrates itself in the fruit of righteousness in a believer's life. That's the idea. That a genuine experience of salvation manifests itself in a transformed life that walks and lives and thinks consistently with God's revealed will, namely righteousness. Faith, life, and union with Christ produces righteousness. So these verses mark the one whose life demonstrate the reality of salvation. Now, corollary truth, however, is this. With that. And again, these are important to understand as you read Scripture. There will be passages that will throw you off. A corollary truth is this. That though justified, though declared and counted righteous in Christ, imputed, to use that language, the righteousness of Christ, which is our justification, though we are set apart to God in Christ, that's why we're called saints, holy ones, is what a saint is, which is everybody who is in Christ, positionally sanctified, in other words, in your position, set apart to God in Christ, called as saints of God, even though those things are true, even though we are adopted as children of God and share in the life of Christ, even though one day we will be counted blameless before Christ and in terms of our standing are counted that way, God as a loving Father deals with us on the basis of obedience and disobedience. As his children, as his children, he deals with us on the basis of obedience or disobedience. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap from the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap from the spirit. That's true to every person. If one is truly in Christ, however, our righteousness or obedience or disobedience does not affect our standing, but it does affect our enjoyment, our fruitfulness, and our experience of the blessing of the covenant. And that's what you read a lot in the Psalms, particularly. The experience of the blessing of the covenant. When David and others would claim that God treats them and should treat them based on the integrity of their life and their own pursuit of righteousness, he's saying that already he is a recipient of grace, but to enjoy this blessing of the covenant, then it requires our obedience to the one with whom we're in covenant with, namely God doesn't affect our standing, but it does affect our enjoyment, our fruitfulness, and our experience of God's favor and blessing in this world. Our righteousness does not bring us into a covenant relationship with God, but it affects our experience of this relationship. And so that's what Peter says. For the one who desires life, to love good, to love, and to see good days, he must, so on and so forth. So what does he mean to say desires life and see good days? Well, the primary meaning is this. If you have this kind of character and right response, even in a hostile a world hostile to the gospel, life will generally be better for you. That's essentially what he's saying. Life will generally be better for you. 
As a matter of fact, he'll say in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? Who is there to harm you? Generally, that will diffuse those who would seek to do you harm. If you do not personally retaliate towards those who do you evil or insult or treat you generally in a wrong manner, if you're properly submitted to those who are in authority over you, civil authority, authority in the workplace, authority in the home, if you are generally known for doing good, for speaking truthfully and being a peacemaker, the fact is life will generally go better for you. It'll just go better for you. You'll have less problems. Proverbs 16, 7 says this, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Even his enemies to be at peace with him. Conversely, if you are generally a vengeful person, self-interested, rebellious toward authority, untrustworthy, contentious, then generally life will not go as well for you. You're going to have more problems. It will not be as good and you will not see many good days. So that's, that's the essential point here. That's the upfront point. But remember here, the idea of experiencing God's goodness in this life for the believer can never be understood apart from our covenant relationship with God. So David or Asaph or any of the other psalmists never spoke those things apart from their covenant relationship with God. And that means then that we cannot think of those things apart from, in our context, in the new covenant, apart from union with Christ and apart from inner spiritual reality of walking faithfully with Him. So in other words, this isn't some sort of method for the good life. This is, in fact, describing the one who walks in covenant faithfulness with God. It is a spiritual reality. As a matter of fact, he's going to call us to that when he twice says in this context that we are to keep a good conscience. In verse 16, and keep a good conscience. So in the thing in which you're slandered, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In verse 21, he talks about the faith that we had in crying out to God. He says, is an appeal to God in the middle of verse 21 for a good conscience related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says the same thing in Hebrews 13, 18 and other places. In other words, the one who walks in this kind of covenant faithfulness is one who has appealed to God for a good conscience through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore has been brought into union with Christ who has purified our souls for a sincere love of the brethren who is united to Christ and a part of that spiritual house and that spiritual temple being built together in the spirit and that we seek to walk in covenant faithfulness and keep a clear conscience and a good conscience. Paul amazingly said that several times in his ministry. He would say, I always have kept a good conscience before God. A good conscience before God. It means then to walk in integrity, truth, and obedience. So for the believer, our experience of good is directly attached to our obedience and conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm only going to mention this for the sake of time. Because then we'll look just quickly, specifically at what this looks like. But just notice this kind of a macro picture here that what he displays is the very heart of sanctification. And sanctification is simply that work, ongoing work of the Spirit or progressive sanctification, that ongoing work of the Spirit in our life in which he conforms us more and more to the image of Christ and to his likeness. 
conforms us in our affections, conforms us in our attitudes, conforms us in our obedience, our, the actual things that we do. So spiritual maturity that runs throughout this passage is namely this, and this is just the big idea, is that holiness and obedience is not simply a matter of what we avoid, but what we pursue. There is a put-off and a put-on reality to our sanctification. It's not a matter that we merely avoid evil, but we seek what is good before God. That's at the heart of sanctification, of regeneration, of genuine faith. The things we avoid are not so much because we're running from something, but we're running to someone, namely Christ. And if you can get that, then you have come a long way. We spend so much time as if sanctification were about us running from things and avoiding things. Legalistic church cultures have that kind of attitude. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Stay away from this. There is an element, clearly, of what we are to avoid, but that's not at the heart of sanctification. At the heart of sanctification and holiness is what we're running to, what we love, what, we, what our heart and our affections embrace as good for our souls. And that's what he gets at here. We are to avoid, but we're to avoid because we're running to something else, namely an intimate fellowship with God and his fellowship in this world. Well, let's just look quickly at this then. What are the characteristics of it? What are the specifics of the transformed life that Peter points us to here? First is righteous speech. You will be marked by righteous speech. You must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Again, this is a manifestation of the life of Christ in verse 22. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No word that was untrue in any way, shape, or form ever came from the lips of our Savior. He spoke only the truth. And this is the truest marker of our spiritual condition. The tongue. The tongue. Oh, so much to say there, isn't there? James chapter 3, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing... That as such, we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man or a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Tongue tells us where our heart is. Negatively speaking deceit, lying, shading the truth, not being honest is a mark of the devil not a mark of the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of truth. Satan, however, is a liar, and he's been a liar from the beginning. Revelation 21.8, you could write those if you want. Verse 27, 22, chapter 15, repeats, even in the context of the new heaven and earth, who are those who are outside the city? Who are those who are outside God's salvation and blessing? Are those who, among other things, are Liars. They're liars. Their life is deceit. They will deceive at any point to protect themselves or to accomplish something. Positively, however, it means to speak what is good. Speak what is good, not evil. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. He said earlier that we are to lay aside falsehoods, falsehood, speak truth to one another and with his neighbor. It's how we witness to the world. Paul says, let our speech always be with graciousness so we should know how to respond to each person. This is the one who walks in the truth and who speaks the truth. And listen, and this is tough, even when it brings condemnation to yourself. 
even when it can bring harm to yourself. One, when you have to honestly admit a fault that you've been caught in. Rather than lying, you own up to it. You speak the truth. You don't deceive. You don't try to whitewash it, mineralize it, rationalize it, justify it, or somehow make it less than what it actually is. Nope, I did that. I did that. You're right, and I'll bear the consequences of it. That's one part. It also means speaking the truth and speaking consistent with righteousness even when that can bring us problems in the world. That means that when everybody else is going one way and we'd have an opportunity to compromise on the truth, to hide the truth, to not speak what is true because we don't want the censure of others, we don't want the insult of others, we don't want the condemnation of others, and so we don't say it. There's a time that's wise to be, keep silent, but then there's a time where it's simply fear of man. And so we should speak the truth. We're one as those who speak the truth always. Speak words, the truth graciously. Speak the truth in love. But we're truth speakers, not deceivers. Secondly, that we're known by our good works. He must turn away from evil and do good. Again, this is perfectly modeled in Christ. Verse 22 again, he committed no sin. This is the reality of the Christian life. Saved from sin to righteousness. So often, so much of Christianity gets stuck on the saved from, from sin. Saved from sin's consequences, but never seems to go all the way to saved to good works. Saved to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. To save to righteousness. But we are. So we turn away from evil and we do good. That's how we live the good life. And sometimes that good life is defined... By God, it means it may even bring persecution. It may even bring persecution. But this is the one who loves Christ. Verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, though you do not see him, you love him. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's that simple. The world is under the influence of the evil one, John says. Evil is everything that would design to corrupt what is pure, what is contrary to what is good and holy. This world, particularly, you hear us harp on it a lot particularly with the internet, is fraught with innumerable temptations, each a tool of Satan to make sin attractive, available, and supposedly anonymous, but all designed to bring havoc to our soul. And the next is that he's a peacemaker. Well, we're going to stop there for today. We'll pick it up there and transition into this next section next week. How do you live a good life? How are you a witness to Christ in this world? When you can demonstrate that a real experience of grace by blessing those who do you wrong, by keeping your tongue from evil, speaking truth, by being one who's known for the purity of life and who seeks to be a peacemaker. This is the one where the Lord is attentive to their cry because you walk in fellowship with Him and His ears attend their prayer. I pray this is you and me. Let's pray. Together and actually, where's John? John, we'll make this the benediction uh, just because there's a couple minutes over. Father, we do thank you for grace because all of this is impossible for us apart from grace. Apart from a real experience of having tasted your kindness, oh God, we don't even want to do these things. And in the secretness of our lives, those hidden places of our lives, we will choose to do evil and be deceitful. But those who had our eyes opened by your grace, 
want to walk lives, with lives of integrity and truthfulness and make that true of us. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Make us pray the prayer even on the front of our bulletin this morning that you would cause us to understand the greatness of redemption, that you would cause us to walk in truth, that you would be our strength in the pursuit of righteousness, that you would be our hope, that you would be our seal. Help us to live this way that we might honor Christ and bear witness to the glory of Christ and the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel and our embrace of our Savior who is worthy above all things. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, we do have fellowship dinner.